Welcome to The World Below, The War in the Heavens, a podcast exploring the adventure, the intrigue, and the magic of a land that lies beneath the celestial battle between gods and demons, a clash that has gone on since time immemorial. I'm your guide, your interlocutor, and your host, Michael Pryor. Welcome, gentlefolk all, to episode six of the World Below the War in the Heavens podcast. And this one is Ken Little I, the second monarch of Anarchist, the successor to Eucantha Anarchist. Now, before we get into a discussion of the reign of Ken Little I, it's a useful time for a survey of the rest of the continent to give you some idea of the way the world below the war in the heavens was in these times around the foundation of Anarchist nearly 2,000 years ago. That's a long time in anyone's figuring, and I hope it helps to explain some of the mystery and uncertainties that stalk this history I'm recounting. Think of the varying views on what happened in our world a couple of millennia ago. Why did they kill Julius Caesar? Did Yayoi technology spread by migration from the Asian mainland? Or was it a simple diffusion of ideas? Or was it a combo deal, a little from column A, a little from column B? And then there's the mystery of what sort of snake did Cleopatra actually clasp to her bosom? Lots of facts are established, lots of details are still argued about. It's part of what makes history so interesting. So, The vast and widespread continent of the world below the war in the heavens sprawls across many different climactic zones, and in contemporary times, it's home to a number of well-established realms, city-states, monarchies, uh, nations of all sorts. It also hosts a number of sites that were once thriving realms, city-states, monarchies, uh, places that, for one reason or another, didn't survive, either dying out or getting subsumed into other states, some of which in turn have disappeared. Anarchist, in lots of ways, is the outlier here. It alone, of all the states, has endured for two millennia, more or less. All of its rivals, its uh, the upstarts and foes from the era of its foundation, are no longer with us. Perrin, for instance, the city-state that saw an early flowering of science, culture and magic, even before the foundation of Anarchist, was destroyed when an undersea volcanic eruption far to the south sent a tsunami northwards, devastating the city and outlying areas. Thousands died, and even more tragically in the eyes of some, the library of Perrin was destroyed, and all of its precious texts disappeared into the depths of the sea. A single eyewitness account of this disaster survives. An anonymous observer many leagues away to the east, on the other side of the gulf upon which Perrin was located, she wrote of waves taller than mountains. She immediately vowed that she was leaving the seaside for the inland, and I, for one, don't blame her. As a little kid, tsunamis were one of my great fears, along with thunderbolts and lightning. Very, very frightening. Kenlil ascended to the throne in the year 11313. In this period, three major states did exist. Jalox, the rugged island to the south of the mainland, uh, the home of Eucantha Anarchist, well, it hosted somewhere between 8 and 19 independent, well, I suppose you could call them nations at the time, but they were very small, often more like an extended clan holding than anything else. So I'll leave them for another podcast. 
In order of size, the existing states at the time of the foundation of Anarchus were three, Brel, Arenthia and Ulm. Brel was a kingdom of some 200 years old at the time that Eucanthor Anarchist uncovered the heavenfall, and it was located in the tropical far north of the continent, taking in much of the land around the large gulf there, including the west coast of what is Fremen today. Copper ores and gold drew people to the area, and after considerable discussion of a hand-to-hand sort among miners, Fushlin Key was hailed as boss of the original mine site. The transition from this to King was a short one, as the population grew and a dynasty was formed despite the difficult living conditions. As well as the omnipresent heat, and what's reputed to be worse, the humidity, the area was subject to frequent devastating cyclones. Several species of crocodile made this part of the world their home too, uh, none of which were actively vegetarian. The largest uh, could swallow a warrior whole. On top of that, there were venomous snakes and other reptiles were common, like reptiles are common throughout all of the continent in the world below the war in the heavens. And and then there were the frogs, one brief touch of which uh, means death. These hoppers sported descriptive names at the time, like Green Death or the, the Spotted Screamer or Tear Your Own Face Off First Before the Poison Kicks In. Brel collapsed after 400 years of settlement when the mine started running out and it's a wonder it lasted as long as it did, really. Put it down to a triumph of greed over good sense. Arenthia wasn't a mining settlement, it was a mercantile settlement on the mid-east coast situated where the Arenth River runs into the sea. And it's a natural place for a port. And it had a headland to the south that made it an ideal place for sea craft to shelter. It grew from a small settlement, conglomeration of traders, to a reasonably sized city for the time. Oscar Handgarden estimating that it reached a peak of ten to 15,000 dwellers by the second century. Its merchants were some of the first to begin sending caravans to the Anarchist settlement after the heavenfall was uncovered trade that benefited both Anarchist and Arenthia. In some ways, Arenthia's success became its downfall, as it was eventually destroyed when in the year 611, a number of raiding clans from the inland overlooked their differences and consolidated for the purpose of loot. The pillage was extreme, and once the raiders had ridden off, the fires they'd set raged for days, and the entire town of Arenthia was raised, even the docks and the jetties and the warehouses. Today, a moderately sized fishing town is located in the area slightly to the south. The third realm that was existing of uh, note in those days was Ulm, and it was a mysterious realm in the far southwest of the continent, in the corner of what is Toltrus today. From the remains, some mining went on there, and the fertile land must have produced much agriculture, but little more is known about Ulm. Further excavations are probably needed. These three realms were the major population centres in the world below the war in the heavens at this time, the early days of Anarchist. As for the rest of the continent, it was very sparsely populated and almost entirely lawless. 
This sense of vast areas of wilderness still resonates strongly with the people living in the world below the war in the heavens. And you can find echoes of it in literature, music, drama right across the continent. The call of the inland is almost proverbial and many people staunchly express their desire to spend time there, exploring, prospecting or simply breathing the free air. It's noteworthy, though, how few city dwellers actually put these words into action. Now, back to Eucantha the First, Eucantha the Great, Eucantha the Far-Seeing, or simply the Founder. A larger-than-life figure, certainly, but while she was someone grounded in the here and now, after the construction of the Hypogeum, the very next engineering project she began was a system of sewers and cisterns to keep the growing settlement healthy. She also, though, had an eye on the future. Like many rulers of this time, she wanted to form a dynasty to see her family in charge in the years ahead. She took care of the obvious first steps here by having children, five of them in all, Bors, Philomel, Kenlil, Roj and Anders, uh, from three different fathers, none of whom ever actually became an official consort. In fact, Belmont claims that none of them lasted more than a few weeks, even though two of the better-looking apparently manage repeat visits. Escades, as usual in Eucanthus court, paints a more romantic picture where each of Eucanthus' three partners were the love of her life, and it was only unfortunate deaths that stopped their love enduring forever. Make of that what you will. But here's where Eucanthus struck a blow for some kind of gender equity. Jalox, Eucanthus' birthplace, was a pretty blokey place, with most chiefs being male. Despite this, Eucantha very early on, as ruler of Anaquist, insisted that succeeding to the crown wouldn't be automatic. Neither sex nor age would determine who the next ruler of Anaquist was to be. Firstborn is first in line? No. Eucantha had no belief, no trust in being first out of her womb, meaning that somebody immediately had the potential to be a good leader. The same for type of genitals. Early on in her reign, Eucantha Anaquist declared that the crown was essentially up for grabs. As long as you were one of her children, you could become the next ruler. But you had to show that you had the right stuff. And exactly what this right stuff was, she maddeningly refused to say. No matter how many eye rolls she got or how much storming out of the room and slamming the door behind there was. Having set up essentially this battle royale, Eucantha Anaquist retained the power of anointing or nominating her successor at any time she saw fit, and then she sat back and watched the fun. How does a young person show that they're fit to be a monarch? By demonstrating the qualities of a monarch, an absolute ruler whatever they are. Hundreds of Anaquist children have pondered this question and then gone about showing that they indeed deserve to be the chosen one in a very real and very legal sense. Over the centuries, they've actually these Anaquist heirs have ranged in their responses. 
on a few occasions it's come down to an extremely brutal and extremely practical reading of the situation. Like, if I'm the only heir, I'll have to be chosen. For instance, Sendia II in the 3rd century and Actian in the 7th century both murdered all of their siblings on their way to the throne. Crude, but effective, at least in some terms. Usually, however, showing the necessary ambition has been demonstrated in more subtle and, dare I say, more regal ways. Forming alliances, making promises for future preferment, backstabbing, usually figurative, or dedicating oneself to good work, self-abnegation and outright bribery have had successes over the millennium and a half that the Anaquis dynasty has been around. Yucantha Anaquis' method of choosing a successor, while unorthodox, has obviously proven to be successful to judge by the fact that the Anaquist family is still in charge of the realm that their ancestor began so long ago. It's also made for a sensational generational saga, full of drama, conflict and everlasting juiciness, perfect for a quality TV series with well-known and well-spoken actors. With a head start, Kendall's oldest children, Bors and Philomel, took the obvious route and went about dominating their younger siblings. Rog and Anders pretty much accepted that they were out of the running and simply pledged their allegiance to their older sibs. Showing some early cunning, however, they both vowed to support both Bors and Philomel without the other knowing, having a bit each way, so to speak. Kenlil was left stuck in the middle, an awkward place to be, even without clowns to the left and jokers to the right. Through her teens, she was alternately wheedled and excoriated by her two older siblings as they tried to get her on side. She soon became good at playing them off against each other, while at the same time keeping an eye on her two younger sibs, just in case they were showing some outright precocity, saw her standing in the way and looked to seize a moment. So as soon as she was able to gather enough money and independence in her early 20s, Kendall took herself off to Miro, the small coastal settlement some 40 leagues down the Gefo River, where it meets the sea. This fishing village was already well on the way to becoming the main seaport for Anarchist, and the arrival and residence of a member of the royal family increased its prestige immediately. Soon, it was experiencing a boom and led to a spate of upmarket building. Kenlil's new residence, a grand stone villa, was on a bluff overlooking the village, a position of prominence and also, not coincidentally, a position very difficult to sneak up on. She remained there for much of her early adult life, conspicuously distancing herself from the plotting that was going on back in the stronghold, the expanded castle keep on the edge of the heavenfall. Instead, she devoted herself to trade, using Miro as a base. This led almost inevitably to her making connections in the wider world, including some very firm business and personal arrangements with Arenthia, which eventually resulted in her marriage to Contoldo Afton, the oldest son of one of the largest trading houses in Arenthia. Kenlil was 28 years old at the time, and she was the last of her siblings to marry. The others jumping into wedlock at quite early ages, convinced that by allying themselves, 
with major families in Anarchist that it would show their understanding of how families and politics work if one were to be an absolute monarch. And besides, having the backing of powerful in-laws couldn't hurt if push came to shove, right? Princess Kenlil travelled widely in this period of dynastic uncertainty, not only to Arenthia, but to other settlements and proto-city-states, in furtherance of her trading ambitions. Her negotiating position was strong thanks to the fact that she was able to trade in heavenfall scales, and everyone wanted scales of the quality that Anarchist had aplenty. Secure in her residence and far away from what had become a royal court in Anarchist, Princess Kenlil did a Bradbury. For all you non-Australians out there, doing a Bradbury is one of the highest honours in our country. It's named after Stephen Bradbury, the speed skater who won a gold medal at the 2002 Winter Olympics when all the other competitors in the final crashed out, leaving him to cruise past the melee to victory. While Kenlil didn't actually undertake speed skating, she did manage to survive while all her siblings floundered around her. Bors, for example, was in his middle 30s when he was killed. Uh, when thrown from his horse, a horse he had earlier been seen flogging for recalcitrance. So, fair sucks to you, boss. Philomel was banished not long after when her recruiting of a private army for a palace coup was far from the clandestine cleverness she thought it was. It was rumours that she ended her days in Jalox, the proprietor of a harbourside tavern, and would often be found drinking at midnight and slurring, I, I used to be a princess, you know that? Rog died when caught in quicksand while exploring the coast on the other side of Miro, attempting to show his leadership skills, but in the end attaining a sort of Bradbury-level proverbial status with his well-remembered last words, Quicksand? There's no quicksand around here. Anders, who was never ambitious and probably wouldn't have stood in the way of a Kenil monarchy, ate himself to death and died of a surfeit of lampreys. The lampreys coming after he'd polished off dozens of oysters, some large crabs, a tureen of turtle soup, a few lobsters, three braised ducks and a corner-cut topside of monitor roast, plus a bowl of mashed potatoes. His last words? What's for dessert? By the year 100, Queen Eucantha had watched these four of her children fall by the wayside, and Escades, who by this time had attained the role of special advisor to the crown, reports that she wasn't at all unhappy that the throne was to go to Kenil, even if it was by now by default. In a simple ceremony, she announced that she'd chosen her successor, and thus Princess Kenil was anointed as the heir apparent. Yukantha lived for another ten years after this ceremony and spent them instructing her daughter in the finer arts of monarchy, Kenlil proving to be an apt pupil. Queen Yukantha I, founder of Anaquas, died in 110. Her reign had been one of prosperity, despite the precariousness of the early years, and she'd been a popular leader. Her funeral was lavish, and she was buried in the Hypogeum, the only monarch of Anarchist to be afforded such a signal honour. 
lying for eternity next to the body of the dead god. Queen Kenil I ruled for 86 years, and this was the time when Anakus grew so that it dominated the continent in nearly every way. The town around the walls of the stronghold grew, people being attracted by the opportunities that the scales of the dead god provided, and Kenlil continued her mother's engineering and architectural work, constructing many substantial municipal buildings, such as baths, army barracks, and the beginning of a royal mausoleum, where she was finally buried. Two buildings that have survived up until the 16th century were particularly noteworthy. A library that had some communication with the Great Library of Perrin, so that a handful of volumes that were on loan from that magnificent institution were actually saved because they were on loan in Anaquist. The second building of note was a combination orphanage and hospital, a large and thoughtfully laid out complex with much green space and garden area. The beginnings of Anaquist as a centre for the study of healing magic began here and it was sadly missed when it burned down in the year 1555. More of Kenlil's work? Well, the river Port of Beacon was mapped out under her supervision, and Miro had the same careful infrastructure plan put in place, with a grid pattern of streets and good waste water systems put in place. This sort of achievement and the construction in and around the stronghold gained Kenlil the nickname of the Builder Queen, Tashor Gandhis has written an excellent book with this title, The Builder Queen, and it's all about this aspect of Kenlil's reign. It's a gem, this book, a lively survey of the remaining buildings from that time, and that's only a handful, sadly, but it's also an extensive investigation of the lost buildings, their construction and their use. It has some sensational sidelights too, so it's not just a dry compendium of engineering statistics. For instance, she reports that Kenlil constructed more than one amphitheatre in Anaquist, ranging from small, intimate performance places where early Anaquistian playwrights and musicians got their start, putting in their 10,000 hours before they hit the big time. Then at the other end, there was the Great Theatre, which could seat somewhere between 1,500 and 2,000 people, suitable for outright epics. Organdis spends some time recounting the War of the Comedians in the 140s, where rival humorists were trying to sabotage each other's performances, a practice that was basically accepted by the population as long as the sabotage was entertaining in its own right, such as the night that the ribald poet Bent Nose Haventon released a herd of pigs into the great theatre, all of them marked with the name of his rival, Sinta Eulanese. The town was agog after this, waiting to see what Eulanese would do in return, and they didn't have to wait long, because on the very next night, while Bentnose Haventon was in the middle of one of his most salacious and uproarious poems, she strode onto the stage and with one blow straightened his nose for him. Then she kicked him in the groin, and while he was writhing on the ground, kicked him in the kidneys a couple of times. This received a standing ovation, and she retired to a farm in the countryside. Yep. Tash Organdis, the Builder Queen, great on concrete and even better on titillating anecdotes. Get a hold of it if you can. Anarchist status as a true city-state grew as settlements in the outlying areas sprang up to exploit various local resources, 
timber, marble, various minerals. And the people in these outlying areas were only too pleased to pledge allegiance to the power that Anarchist had become so quickly in return for protection. Kenlil, busy in not just building, she also negotiated treaties with Brel, Orenthia and Ulm with promises of free trade between these major population centres, establishing her reputation as a diplomat. When you think about it, Kenlil had enormous shoes to fill. As a privileged offspring of a fabulously rich absolute ruler, she could have ended up as a dissolute, selfish lazy aristocrat, a fate that we'll come across many times as we work our way through Anarchistian history. If this had have happened, though, I doubt that Anarchist would be with us today. When she came to the throne, Anarchist was still, you'd call it a baby realm, just begun and easily disrupted. Kendall had to deal with ambitious aristocratic families, the descendants of Eucanthor Anarchist followers, the ones who had come with her into the wilderness and helped her uncover the Great Heavenfall. She also had to cope with the influx of equally ambitious newcomers. And she also had to fend off outsiders who had never given up the possibility of conquering Anarchist and taking the Heavenfall for themselves, they being as ambitious as the next person. If Kenlil hadn't been a capable monarch, Anarchist could have collapsed, falling apart into factional warfare, families quarrelling with families, allying themselves with outsiders, only too happy to promote discord. Instead, Kenlil consolidated what her mother had begun, and she ruled with complete competence right up until the end of her days, something which became a hallmark of the Anarchists. Throughout history, rarely do Anarchists descend into dotage or lose their vitality in old age. When death comes to an anarchist, it comes swiftly, with very little decline. Nice genetics, I say. So that's Kenlil I, the second monarch of anarchist. I've really skated across the top of what she managed to do, but it's enough to give you the impression of her as a monarch. But what about Kenlil as a person. As I probe these early monarchs of Anarchist, this this is always on my mind. From my reading of primary and secondary sources, it's often difficult to get a sense of these almost legendary rulers as real human beings with their quirks and foibles, likes and dislikes, fads and fetishes. It's almost as if putting on the crown turns them into something else other than what we are, or more likely, putting on the ground, draws the attention of the chroniclers to that rather dazzling aspect of the person. And so that's all that survives. It's all that we hear about. Or nearly. Anyway, Escades, and where would we be without Escades for insights into these early monarchs? Escades reports that the young Kenlil was quick, both physically and in mind, ready and eager to learn. She was dexterous with a sabre, and she played most stringed instruments. Very well. Something she pursued less and less the older she became. She was a cat person, and she always had one or two at her side throughout her life. Despite her penchant for buildings with grandiose towers, she didn't have a head for heights, and she'd delegate the details of the constructions of spires and steeples and lookouts to assistants. There you go. 
a few small details that helped to flesh out the person that was Ken Lil Anaquist. Ken Lil married once and it only lasted three years, her husband being a captain in the fledgling Anaquistian merchant fleet. Ken Lil dissolved the marriage when he arrived home after one of these voyages and greeted her with the ancient Anaquistian equivalent of the it's not you, it's me speech. And we can thank Escades for that final titbit. Ken Lil went on to have three children and despite the hardships of her childhood, she implemented the same succession plan that her mother had instituted. But she added one wrinkle. She waited until the youngest of her children was 14 until she told them about it. After that, it was on for young and old. That's Kenil I, second monarch of Anarchus, the Builder Queen, the daughter of Yukanta I, the founder. She found Anarchus a settlement of stone, and she left it a settlement of stone, only more so. She survived murder attempts, poisonings, attempts to ruin her reputation and other family pursuits to become the monarch that Anarchist needed. This has been The World Below the War in the Heavens, a podcast exploring the history, culture and esoterica of the world below, a continent of magic and mystery with inhabitants who keep one eye on the sky at all times. I've been your host, Michael Pryor. If you'd like to find out more about me and my books, pop over to www.michaelpryor.com.au. Farewell.